If you haven't already, will you please open your Bible to John chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have here, you're going to find John 16 on page 587. And as you're doing that, I want to invite you to close your eyes and to imagine being surrounded by snow and (laughs) ice. We're having our air conditioner looked at tomorrow. It's not working real well, so it's pretty warm in here. You put a lot of people in here, it feels even worse. So we've decided that next week, instead of coffee, we're going to have snow cones. <laughs> we should. We should. I think some of the parents would hate that. We would love it. So Jesus is wrapping up his uh, farewell discourse. That's what he's going to do today. Um, He started this all the way back at the beginning of John chapter 14. So three chapters are just Jesus finishing things up in that room with the disciples and then on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knows that he's going to be arrested and that's going to be the beginning of a chain of events that's going to end in his death on the cross. So he is saying his goodbye, if you will, for now to the disciples, and he has a lot that he wants to say to them. Well, these are the very last things that he's going to say to them. This will be the very end of this farewell discourse, and what you'll see is that he's looking at his disciples now, and these are the last words that he has to say to them. And then in John 17, he, he turns his focus heavenward, and he prays in front of them to God the Father. So God the Father is the last one he, he talks to, but, but he's going to finish up talking to them this morning in our text, and then next week you'll see he turns his focus heavenward, and he prays to God. So let's see what he has to say to the disciples as he wraps that up, of course, what he has to say to us. Before I preach, we should pray. Our Father in heaven, there is so much here today that I feel pressure to to communicate well and to illustrate well. And I, I, I feel even now anxious and worried that I'm not going to handle this as well as I should and, and that maybe people here aren't going to feel and understand what what I feel and understand, and I don't want anyone cheated today. So, God, just remind me that it is you that does this work, and it is your spirit that does this work. Uh, But I know I have a job to do, so help me to do it well, and help all of us, including myself, to listen well, because even the, um, the affections that I'm I'm having for you this morning. I know they can grow and and deepen, and I desire that. And I know I have brothers and sisters here who are broken, uh, who are weak, uh, who are are frail, who feel like they can barely listen. And I I pray that you come now and help them and give them the strength to hear and understand the preaching of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As a reminder, here is what expositional preaching is. Uh, expositional preaching, and expositional preaching just is really uh, right preaching. Um, eh, expositional preaching is predominantly the kind of preaching that you've had 
in the Christian church ever since the first century. Um, so it was a bit redundant centuries ago to say expositional preaching. It's sort of like saying preaching, preaching. Um, it's just what preaching was. But it's good to make the distinction now of what expositional preaching is. Expositional preaching happens when this happens. The definition that I've heard and learned and it's been helpful for me. It is when the, uh, it starts with a passage in the Bible and expositional preaching is when the content and the intent of the passage controls the content and the intent of the sermon. That's what expositional preaching is. So we start with a passage of the Bible and then the preacher has to come under that passage of the Bible and submit to that passage of the Bible, not stand on top of it and do what he might want to do with it, but to do his best to submit to it and say, what does this say? What is the content? And then what is the intent? Why are you saying it, God? So what are you saying, God? Why are you saying it? That has to control what comes out in the sermon. So that's the goal always when, when a sermon is preached. So today first, let's understand the content. And we're always doing that every week, by the way. I'm um, just reminding us, and we do it in different ways. But today, let's do it this way. Let's, let's first begin by, by trying to understand the, the content. And let's do that by walking sort of quickly through the passage and sort of quickly so that we, we don't um, lose the, the, the flow of thought that, that Jesus has here, which can happen if you slow too, too much and focus too much on one part. Sometimes you can lose you know, the, the flow of thought. So we'll go through pretty quickly. Quickly, I think, for me. It might not feel quickly to you, uh, especially with as hot as it is. But we'll go quickly through, understand the content. And then let's go back to, through it and slow down by looking at just a few verses that I think make very clear what the intention of Jesus is here. So first, what is he saying? Part one, then second part, okay, why is he saying it? Which is where we really begin to apply that to our heart. So part one, what is, what is Jesus saying? Let's start reading it in verse 23. Help us to understand what you're saying, Jesus. In that day, he says to his disciples, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. We'll just start with those two verses. Look at the very first verses. In that day. Now, based on verses 16 through 22, the verses just before these verses, that day is when the disciples will see Jesus again after his death, after his resurrection, and their hearts will be turned from sorrow to joy. So in that day, that day which marks the beginning of eternal togetherness. Because once they see Jesus again after he's resurrected, they'll never be separated from him again. They'll be eternally Together, That's what he said in chapter 16, verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So that's eternal 
togetherness, if you will. It's going to be the beginning of that after his death and resurrection. Never separated again. That's the day he's talking about. Okay, what about that day? Well, Jesus says in that day, the disciples will ask nothing of Jesus. Now, they will ask nothing of Jesus because he won't be there. And that's what they've been in the habit of doing, right? They have been face-to-face with Jesus. They've been in the presence of Jesus 24-7. If they have a question, if they need help, what do they do? They ask Jesus. But in that day, some things are going to change. He's already explained what those are going to be. But he's not going to be there physically present the way he's been. So in that day, they won't be asking anything from Jesus, not face-to-face. But that doesn't mean that Jesus wants them to stop asking. He doesn't want them to stop asking. They'll just need to redirect their asking. Truly, truly, verse 23, I say to you, whatever you ask, you see the shift, of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, of the Father he means, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So from now on, here's what he's telling his disciples in verse 23 and 24. From now on, they will direct all their asking to the Father in Jesus' name, and they shall have what they ask for. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Let's stop again. In figures of speech, Jesus says. That that doesn't mean that can't mean that everything Jesus has set up until this point is figurative. It's not like he only spoke in parables and metaphors, especially not to the disciples. That's even a distinction that's made in other parts of the Bible that he spoke predominantly in parables to everyone else, but to his disciples, right, he didn't just speak in parables or figures of speech. Even in these things he's just said in his farewell discourse, there's been some figures of speech. Remember the vine and the branches? uh, Or when he illustrates a point by talking about the woman who is in labor and gives birth to a child. Okay, those are figures of speech. But most of what he just said to the disciples wasn't figures of speech. So when he says, hey, time is coming when I'll no longer talk to you in figures of speech, it it can't mean that all he's been saying is figurative. So this can mean something else, and it does. Here's what it means. It means that, and and see if you think this is consistent with what you've read, it means that much of what Jesus has said to the disciples has been unclear up until this point. And they have had a hard time understanding the things that Jesus has said. Now, if you read up until this point in John or in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke, you see that that's true. 
There are things that are not clear up until this point. There are things that they just don't get. What he's saying here is that an hour is coming when they're going to get it. An hour is coming when Jesus will, what does he say here in verse 25? He will tell them plainly about the Father. Well, when is he going to do that? When is he going to tell them plainly about the Father? How is he going to tell them plainly about the Father? Well, he's already told them that. Chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Or he just said in verse 13 of this chapter, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So I submit that what Jesus is saying in verse 25 is that an hour is coming when the disciples will get it because Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, will tell them plainly about God the Father. And you could jump ahead and read and see that it is exactly what happens beginning at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit is sent to the disciples. So putting this together so far, verses 23 through 25, Jesus is saying, a day is coming, verse 23, an hour is coming, verse 25, and what is Jesus saying about this day that is coming? What is he saying about this hour that is coming, which by the way, is the day that all of you Christians are living in? It's the hour that all of you Christians are living in. What is he saying in this verses about that day, about that hour? And I think what he's saying boils down to that day, that hour will be about asking and understanding. Asking and understanding. Understanding coming down, asking going up. Which is true for Christians today. It's one way to summarize your Christian life. Understanding, coming down, asking, going up. And that's what he says here. There is coming a day when there is going to be understanding from the Father, by the Spirit, through Jesus, to you. That's what Jesus said. An hour is coming when I will speak plainly to you about God the Father. How's he going to do that? He's made that clear by the Holy Spirit. So understanding from the Father, by the Spirit, through Jesus, to the disciples. And to you, disciples today. Understanding coming down. And then what does that look like in reverse? Asking to the Father... By the Spirit, through Jesus, going up. That's a summary. You're going to ask the Father in my name. So prayers are going up. Asking is going up. How? By the Holy Spirit prompting you, leading you, guiding you, crying out through you, Abba, Father, 
by the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, in Jesus' name, to the Father. What's the summary? The hour and the day that is coming. Understanding, coming down, asking, going up. Verse 26. In verse 26, Jesus goes back and says something about that asking, going up. He has a clarification to make. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now think with me for just a minute. And we'll come back to this. But I said that Jesus, in verse 26, he's going back to that asking the Father in my name. He's clearly going back to that, and he's making a clarification. There's a clarification that he needs to make. And I think his clarification is this. Let me put it into my own words, what I think Jesus is saying. When I tell you that a day is coming... When you will no longer ask the Father, or I'm sorry, you will no longer ask me, but you will ask the Father through me. That's what he said. The clarification is when I say that to you, disciples, that a day is coming when you're no longer going to ask me, but you will ask the Father through me, don't take that to mean that the Father needs my prompting to love you. That's the clarification. We'll come back to that. But that is the clarification. When I tell you, you're no longer going to ask me, you're going to ask the Father, and that's going to go through me, I don't want that to give you the impression that I need to like prompt the Father to love you, or I'm like the more lenient parent here. And so you come and make your request to me, and then I'll put in the good word, and then he'll say yes. In that day, here's what he says, you will ask in my name and do not, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. That's the clarification. Why not? For the Father himself loves you. Okay? We'll come back to that. The next two verses are an interruption by the disciples and the interruption in verse 29 and 30, what they say could be taken a couple of different ways. I think that the disciples say some true things. I mean, they do. They say some true things here. I think they still don't get it. So there's disagreement over whether they do get it or they don't get it at this point. Maybe the moment where he's speaking plainly to them is right now, and they do get it in this proclamation. And I don't think so. And I don't think so because listen to how Jesus will respond to them. And when you hear how Jesus responds to them, I think he's saying, you guys think you get it, you still don't get it. Okay, but here's what they say. His disciples say, ah, now you are speaking now. Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. What are they saying? We get it. That's what they're saying. Now we know, and here's true things, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Okay, that's their interruption, and now here is his response. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? 
Now, I think, I think, that's a, that's a critical question, not an affirming question. I don't think he's affirming them in their belief. I think he's saying, no, you, and do you now believe? Like, you don't. You don't. Now, you, you don't get it yet. Now, listen to what he says next. Because here's why I think he's, he's saying it that way. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Do you see what he just did? Now, you might remember other places where Jesus has done that. He has done this before. When he hears pride in his disciples, or when he hears, maybe not pride, when he hears an overconfidence, like, we get it, or we're ready, or we'll do this, or let's go. He's done this before. When he hears that overconfidence, he says something about the future to bring them back down to earth. Kind of like, really? Really, you get it now? Really, you're ready to die for me? Right, he said things like that before. And so he looks at, do you now believe? Well, here's what's going to happen. Zechariah 13, 7, right? You, you strike the shepherd, and what do the sheep do? They all, they all scatter. They all run away. And he's telling them that's, that's about to happen. So I, I don't think you get it yet. You're going to get it, but not yet. Yet, he says this, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So that concludes part one. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the content. Now what about the intention? Why is he saying that? Why is that good for them? Why is that good for us? What does that mean for them? What does that mean for you? What's your intention, Jesus? What is your purpose for saying these things? Well, we have a big clue. It's nice when it's this simple. In verse 33. Look at verse 33. The, the very last words that Jesus says before he turns his head heavenward in prayer. All right, the very last words. Verse 33 what is your intention, Jesus? I have said these things to you, that or so that, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So why has Jesus said these things in Chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16, what does he say at the very end? I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. So here's what he's saying. In this world, you will have tribulation. It says that in verse 33. That's a big word. In this world, you will have tribulation. So, if in this world you have tribulation, as you might expect, that's going to be a threat to your confidence. That's going to be a threat 
to any peace that you might have. So you're in this world. This world is a world of tribulation. That's going to threaten your peace. That's going to threaten your courage or your heart. And so what is the last truth Jesus lodges in their mind? I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. John is going to expound on that when he writes his letter, 1 John. Let me read you two of the verses in 1 John, chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, I have overcome the world, so take heart. I know your circumstances are threatening your heart and your courage. I know your circumstances are threatening your peace. But listen, I have overcome the world. Or in chapter 5, verse 4 of 1 John, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So that is the truth, as Jesus wraps up, that is the truth that they need. That is the truth that you and I need that is the right thinking that we need if we're going to take heart, if we're going to have courage, if we're going to have peace. This is the truth we need lodged in our minds, in our hearts, to remember that Jesus has overcome the world. So he has waged the battle and he has won the battle. The decisive victory has been fought and won on the cross. The cross was the decisive blow to God's great enemy, Satan. And he is as good as dead. Now, the war is not over. Just like you can look at any earthly wars and look back and find the decisive battles, that doesn't mean there isn't still pain and suffering, there aren't still battles, there aren't still skirmishes, but the fate of the enemy has already been determined. And that's what happened on the cross. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he said, I have overcome the world. In other words, you can trace any of your trouble, you can trace any of your lack of joy, you can trace any of your issues, you can trace any of your problems and sin, and on and on and on, back to sin, back to the world. And what is Jesus saying? I've won. I've overcome that. It won't have the last word. The very last things he says to his disciples in this farewell discourse. I have overcome the world. Now, is there anything else here? Is there anything else that, that Jesus says in these verses that is helping these disciples to take heart, that is 
helping these disciples to have peace. He talks about peace. That is helping these disciples to have joy. He mentions joy. Think about what else Jesus is talking about in these last few verses. Remember, understanding coming down. Understanding that he has overcome the world. But what else has Jesus done in these last few words to the disciples before he departs from them? He's talked about prayer. Think about this. What are the last things you're going to say to these boys? Knowing what they're about to face. Knowing what Christians will face. Knowing what you today are facing. Are we surprised that Jesus talks about prayer? Not just prayer. He's more specific, isn't he? Because most of you know that when you pray, right, there's different kinds of prayers that I pray. Maybe you memorize the acronym ACTS when you were younger. A-C-T-S. You've got to cover them all in your prayers. Act A, adoration, C, Confession, T, thanksgiving, <laughs> S, supplication. So he's talking about a very specific form of prayer here. And he's giving them some, some truth about it. And it's the supplication, isn't it? The petition, the asking God. Understanding is going to be coming down, but he knows what's going to happen. And he wants them to understand some crucial things about the asking that is going up. And and what is he about to do in front of them? He's about to pray. That's chapter 17. So he, he talks about, hey, you guys, here's how you need to ask and make your requests. And we're going to look at what he says. And then, and then what does he do? He just sort of ignores them. And he turns his head to heaven and he has a conversation, I think, out loud in front of them with God the Father. Here's how you do it. He's done that before, and he'll do it again. So before he prays here, we don't want to gloss over this. He tells his brothers something about prayer. And there really, it's true, there is no taking heart without this. There is no peace without this. And there is no joy without this. So let's look closely at those verses. It's verses 23 and 24, and verses 26 and 27. And I'm saying this is a main thing Jesus is getting across here because he signals it by those two words in verse 23, truly, truly. When he says that, you you perk up and say, okay, this is, everything he says is important. This is really important. So let me read 23 and 24, and then 26 and 27. And then we'll look more closely. Remember, what are we talking about here? We're talking about asking. Asking. So not just prayer. Asking God. Very narrow. Focus. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
And then that clarification in 26. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. If I were to summarize this teaching that Jesus just gave in those four verses, it would sound something like this. Christian, whatever you ask of the Father, in Jesus' name, He will give to you, and your joy will be full. That's big. To summarize what Jesus is saying here, Christian, whatever you ask of the Father, in Jesus' name, He will give it to you, and your joy will be full. That's what Jesus says. Now this gets, I think some of you are aware of this, this gets misunderstood sometimes, and this gets maligned sometimes, and it gets abused sometimes. And basically the way that happens is it's put out like a sort of formula, right? So what do you want? What do you want? Here's how to get it. You've got to ask the Father in Jesus' name. Have enough faith when you say it. And if you do, you'll get it. If you don't get it, there's something wrong with you. Something wrong with your faith. Uh, there's an abuse of these verses. But I would say this. Don't overreact to that. Because this verse is still crazy. It's just a different kind of crazy. So it's not that crazy, like here's a formula, the magical incantation, and if you follow it, you'll get what you want. That's crazy. That is not what it says. But this is still crazy, what he says. And so you can overreact to like that word faith, stuff. You can overreact to that and then you can dilute this and you won't get the force of what Jesus is saying here. So let's look more closely. I think there are four, port, four parts to that, that truth and what Jesus says here. I think there are four parts that if we get them, they will be really helpful for us. And the four parts are basically this. Ask the Father. What does that mean? And am I allowed to ask the Spirit for anything or Jesus for anything? You ever wondered that? So ask the Father. What does he, what does he mean? Secondly, in Jesus' name. What does that mean? Third, He will give it to you. And my question there is, Really? That's the crazy. He will give it to you. And fourth is a surprise. I'll leave a surprise at the end that I think will be worth it. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we uh, begin? How do we 
how do we understand what Jesus is saying here about prayer, specifically asking? Number one, ask the Father. Ask the Father. That's the first thing to think about. Listen to what Jesus says in 23 and 24. I'm just going to emphasize that he's telling us to ask the Father, not him. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing of the Father in my name. Ask of the Father, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So this is really, this is a new era of praying that is being introduced to these disciples, right? To this point, they have presented their requests to Jesus, who they know is God, and has been with them for at least these last three years, 24-7. 24-7, God in Christ has been accessible to them. So when they need something, when they ask for something, they ask Jesus. But now... Jesus is going to be with the Father. And so what has he been doing in this farewell? He has been pointing them to the Father. He's been glorifying the Father. And now he's telling them that once he's gone, they are to direct their prayers, specifically their requests, to God the Father. That's what he's doing in verse 23 and 24. So what does that mean for us? It means that for those of you who are Christians, it is not wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. It is not wrong to pray to God the Son. I don't want to say that. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. And we have examples of praying to Jesus in the Bible, like, come, Lord Jesus, come. So, Christian, it is not wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. It is not wrong to pray to Jesus. But, generally speaking, when you ask, you should pray to God the Father. I mean, this really does mean something, what Jesus is saying here. This isn't a throwaway verse. Christian, generally speaking, when you are presenting requests to God, when you are petitioning, when you are asking, you should direct your asking to God the Father. I don't know if you do that. That's very practical. But, okay, I'm asking. I'm making requests I want to direct this to God the Father. And you should do that because, well, Jesus just told you to. He did that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, when he teaches them how to pray. And he says, how do you pray? How do you start off? Our Father who is in heaven. So Jesus has commanded it. It is the pattern all through Scripture And thirdly, the reason that you should direct your asking to God the Father is because, strictly speaking, in the Trinity, God the Father is the originator and giver of all gifts. God is the Father. James 1.17 
Have you heard that verse? Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So really, practically, Christians, think about that. When you are asking, when you are pleading, plead with God the Father. Ask from God the Father. Okay, number two, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. What is that? Well, that's how you end a prayer. That's how everyone knows you're finally done. There we go. There it is. In Jesus' name. And what do we typically do? You typically just rattle right through that. At least I do. Or if you listen to kids, kids will do it. Kids pick up the way you're supposed to pray. Okay, they start with Father, dear Father, dear God, our Father in heaven. How do they end? In Jesus' name. Sometimes the prayer, you da, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> well, we should teach each other not to do that. There's a reason that's right here in these words from Jesus. There's a reason why. It's not just tradition. There's a reason why when we pray, when we especially present our asking to God the Father, that we say, in Jesus' name. Let me just give you a few of the things that this means and and why we do that. Remember earlier I said that asking is going up by the Holy Spirit through Jesus, who is your mediator. Hebrews 4 talks about that. So your prayers are going to the Father. They are going through Jesus, in Jesus' name. So for example, the only way we have access to God is because of Jesus. The righteous died, Jesus, the righteous died for the unrighteous to what? 1 Peter 3, 17, to bring us to God. So Jesus has given us access to God the Father. So when we're praying in Jesus' name, we're understanding that we have access to God the Father because of what Jesus has done. We also know, think about this, that any answers to your prayers are possible because Jesus has purchased those answers. So the request you make, God the Father, please do this. God the Father, please give me this. Please help me. Whatever it is you're asking God for, you are asking on the basis of what Jesus has done. He has made any answers to your prayer possible. Because you were at enmity with God. You were an enemy of God. And now you're a child of God. So I'm remembering and I'm praying these things based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so I pray in Jesus' name. But as well, when we ask God in Jesus' name, this helps us to check what we're asking for. So what am I asking for? And can I ask for this in Jesus' name? 
when you think of someone's name or when you hear someone's name, this is probably obvious to most of you, you don't just think of letters. You think of that person. You think of who they are. You think of your relationship to them or with them. You think about what they've done. And so when you're praying in Jesus' name, you are thinking about Jesus. You're thinking about His will. You're thinking about His desires. You're thinking about what He wants. So it affects, doesn't it? It affects the kinds of things you're praying for. And the more you know Jesus, the more that influences your prayer life. Don Carson, I quoted him before when we looked at Jesus saying something very similar in chapter 14. But he said, prayers in his name are prayers that are offered in thorough accord with all that his name stands for. So when you pray, consider what Jesus would pray for. So here I am asking God the Father, what would Jesus in this situation? It's a great question to ask. What would he ask for? And I'm asking that question because I'm going to pray this in Jesus' name. And so I want, and you think of other verses now, I want my will to be his will. And I want his will to be my will. And I'm reminded of that when I obey Jesus by praying in his name. When I actually think about that, it is sort of shocking how many selfish requests get eliminated. Now, if I just, if in Jesus' name is just, again, how I wrap this thing up, I'm not really thinking about what I mean by that. Maybe not. But what I really think about as I'm presenting my request to God, can I pray this in the name of Jesus? And I'm shocked how many times I realize I'm just being selfish. I'm not, I'm not asking good things. I'm not asking with good motives. I'm not thinking about Jesus. I'm thinking about me. So we got two more. Those first two are some of the how-tos of asking that Jesus lays out. You need to ask the Father. You need to ask the Father in Jesus' name. So what happens for a Christian is the Holy Spirit leads and guides us and prompts us when we pray, working from the inside. Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. The Father is primarily the recipient of our prayers, especially those prayers in which we are asking for something. And Jesus is the mediator and the purchaser of every good gift we may have. And maybe all that does nothing for you, but I'm amazed at all that's going on when I'm asking God the Father for things. So there's two more. And these last two, I would say, are a couple startling truths in what Jesus says. Fourth one's a surprise. The third one, though, is when Jesus says, he will give it to you. 
Now let me read these verses again where he said that. Truly, verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And I say, really? That's where my heart goes. Verse 24, ask and you will receive. He said something very similar in John chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These are startling words. And in John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I want to say that what you pray for is important there. What you pray for is important, and make sure you're removing any of the many obstacles to your prayers that the Bible talks about, but don't water this down. Don't water down what Jesus says here. Whatever you ask in my name you will have it. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Well, based on what Jesus already said, especially about in Jesus' name, we should consider what we're praying for. We should also, it's good to remember that the Bible does mention many obstacles to your prayers many ways that you can put a ceiling on your prayer life. Things like Proverbs 15, 29 says that the Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous. Or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. So if I got unrepentant sin I need to deal with, I need to deal with unrepentant sin. Because that could be an obstacle to my prayers. Husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7, challenges husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. And the motivation that is mentioned there is so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, a husband that is not living with his wife in an understanding way should not expect that his prayers are getting to God the Father. James chapter 4 says that sometimes you don't have things that you need because you're just not even asking. Or maybe you're asking, but you have impure, selfish motives. Or 1 John chapter 5, you're asking, but it's not according to the will of Jesus. So those are... Realities, right? There are obstacles that can 
be there. There are things that you might be asking God for that you should not be asking God for. But don't just, this is how I want to say it, don't just go to all of that and water down this truth of what Jesus says and make excuses. Because at the heart of it, you don't think God is loving. And I think that's what he's driving home here. We can't water this down. So number four, I think I saved the best for last. It is what Jesus says. I mentioned it before, but we will end thinking about it. And it is what Jesus says because we hear that previous truth that I just read that says, anything you ask the Father, in the name of Jesus, he will give to you. I think what Jesus says next in verse 26 is because we hear that and we all too often say, yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's just not true. That's just not true. And so the fourth thing that Jesus says is, don't miss it. It is an absolute jewel embedded in his words. In verse 26, the Father himself loves you. Verse 26, in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why not? For the Father himself loves you. Now, this is just, think about, this is, this is divine perception from God because so many still today struggle with this. So many, in my experience, so many Christians struggle with intimacy with God the Father. Jesus, not so much. But their view of God the Father is, it's skewed. It's off. It's wrong. And so there's this mentality that I can be intimate with Jesus. I can commune with Jesus. I can go to Jesus. I love Jesus. But in this Trinitarian God, I have to go to Jesus because he's the more lenient parent in this, right? You know how kids do that. Moms, dads, you know who you are. One of you is more lenient than the other. You're more lenient with certain things. Your kids are little geniuses. They know this. They know this. They know who to ask for what. They know when to ask it. They know what to say before they ask it. They know what to do. I mean, they're just absolute geniuses. 
But they might go to mom or they might go to dad because I'm not sure this is going to go well if I go to dad here. So I'll go to mom. And then mom will pass it on. Right? And then she'll go to dad. And dad's like, oh, absolutely. And then she'll talk him down. And then what the child is asking for, maybe then the child will get it. Friends, that's not how it works with God the Father. That's not God the Father. So Jesus makes that, that loving clarification. Listen, disciples, I don't want you to think that that's how it works, that you go to me and then I go on behalf of you to the Father. That's not how it works. And what does he say is the reason? He's saying, do you understand this, Veritas Church? The Father himself loves you. He loves you. Now, unfortunately, our culture today and our society today needs this truth and needs these words so much, maybe in ways even that generations before us didn't need it. And we need this because our perception of God the Father is inevitably shaped by our earthly fathers. And there has frankly just been so many terrible earthly fathers. Not all of them, praise God. And some that are not all terrible, maybe a bit of terrible. <laughs> Those of you who are dads, those of you who are fathers, this is so important. If you are not accessible to your children, they will grow up and they will not think that God the Father is accessible to them. If you do not shower them with gifts that you can shower them with, like your words and your time, they will not think that God the Father is going to give them those gifts. And I'm thinking in my mind now of brother after brother that I have talked to that says, when I pray to God the Father, I picture my earthly father and I don't expect anything good from him. That's heartbreaking. It shouldn't be that way, right? This is the clarification that Jesus is making. He's saying regardless of your experience here on earth, this is not God the Father. Studying that this week, thinking about that this week, I was set up to be overwhelmed in one of our songs when we're talking about God the Father abounding in loving kindness. I just couldn't handle it. Just overwhelmed with how loving he is and how kind he is and how I doubt that often or question that often. So Jesus makes that clarification for the disciples. He is saying that when I tell you 
that you have to go to the Father in my name, don't take that to mean that Jesus loves me, but the Father doesn't love me. No, the Father loves you. So let me just close with reading these two verses, or one of them really. One is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. So Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 11. Here's what Jesus is talking about. As he's getting ready to leave, and they're like, oh no, Jesus is leaving, and he's making sure they understand, hey, I'm not like the friendly member of the Trinity. I'm not the loving one. You need to get your perspective right. We all love you. God the Father, the originator and giver of all good gifts, he loves you. I don't love you more than the Father loves you. The Father loves you. The most he could love you. I love you the most he could love you. The Spirit loves you the most that he could love you. And so get these pictures, get these images out of your mind and out of your head. This is your heavenly Father. So remember these verses. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, that means be persistent. Knock. And it will be open to you. Why? For everyone who asks, receives. Like this is just how it works with your heavenly Father. Everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he illustrates it. And he illustrates it with how fathers should be. Do you remember these words? Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you hear the heart? That's all about the heart of God the Father. He wants to say yes. It says the same thing in Luke chapter 11. Only the kid is asking for an egg and he gets a scorpion. So here are these children who would like bread and fish and eggs. And God the Father will not give them stones or serpents or scorpions. So for those of you who had earthly fathers who gave you stones and serpents and scorpions, that's not your heavenly father. He's nothing like that. He's got bread. He's got fish, and he has eggs, and his heart is to give it to you.
And if it's going to be good for you, it's going to be for your best, and it's going to increase your joy, you will have it. Because that's his heart for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, will you help us to to get this? Help us to believe this. God, you told your disciples that in this day that you would speak plainly to us of the Father. You would help us to understand who God the Father is so that we would feel free to stand confidently before him, so that we would feel free to commune with him, so that we would feel free to bring all of our requests to him. So God, would you help us Would you help us to see you rightly so that we would give you the affection you deserve and the love that you deserve and the worship that you deserve? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.